Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you know, it is our practice here to preach through books of the Bible. And having spent the last uh, few years uh, in in the Gospel of Mark, this morning we transition to a, a new book, an epistle, a letter written by Peter. And so we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, the first two verses this morning. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the last uh, few years, we've done a book exchange at the annual Elder and Deacon Christmas Party that uh, is hosted at our house, and uh, we play that game. Perhaps you've played it yourself, or you pick a gift, and then the next person in line can either pick a different gift or perhaps steal the gift that you have. And so we did this uh, with the elders and deacons with various books that were brought, and I was delighted to have uh, secured, after much defending off, uh, one book by some uh, uh, ruthless elders. Uh, Perhaps it was their wives, I'm not quite sure, I don't remember in particular, but uh, these peaceful and uh, seemingly docile elders become quite ruthless when you have a book that they want. But I was able to uh, attain and defend off and secure a book that I was looking forward to, to reading. And that book was Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. I'd actually never had read that book, and I desired to do so, and I was delighted to have received it. And I, I read it in a short manner of time. And I enjoyed it because I love murder mysteries. Perhaps you do it as well. Those whodunit novels. And if you know the type, those detective-type books, be it Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes, you know that the very first steps in the case is to answer those questions of the who, what, when, and where. Those basic facts. Just the facts, ma'am. If you remember the detective, Joe Friday. You need those building blocks, do you not? So that ultimately you can answer that final question or those final two questions, the the why question and the how question, to make your case for why this happened and how it happened, to be able to give your conclusion, to be able to piece all the evidence together to come to that final 
conclusion. Well, as we start a new series this morning, we need to do a little bit of investigation work. And this morning, I encourage you to put your detective hat on to get some basic facts of First Peter so that ultimately we can come to the conclusion. And the conclusion is this. It is not hidden from us. The conclusion is that we may be transformed by this word. That is the purpose of all preaching and teaching. That is the purpose of the preaching ministry of the Word of God. And it is unique to the Word of God alone. You can go to self-help, how-to lectures or business conferences, and no doubt they are helpful to a degree. But there is nothing, nothing like the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And that has nothing to do with the the genius or lack thereof of the preacher who is preaching. It has everything to do with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, that high priestly prayer. He prays for His disciples and He prays specifically that they would be sanctified. And He says, sanctify them in truth. And then adds, Your word is truth. And so we see the purpose of God's word, do we not? That it's the truth. It's the truth that sanctifies. It's the truth that transforms. That is the truth that brings us to Jesus, the author of truth. It's the word of God that changes us from the inside out. It changes our mind. It changes our heart. It changes our affections. It radically transforms our life. A complete change must take place. Why? Because we are now new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. And we need to be reminded of that this morning, do we not? As we come to this new series, we need to examine, yes. We need to search, yes. We need to dig down, but we do not do so just to be entertained or amused or even show ourselves to be superior Bible scholars than the church down the road. No. We do so so that we may be transformed. We do so so that we may be made like Christ. And so I hope that is your prayer as we come to this new book this morning. And that would be your prayer every time that you come to the Word of God, if it be privately or be publicly. So as we come to this Word, we have an opportunity this day, once again, to have the Spirit to do heart work upon us, and we pray that He would. This morning I want to look at the beginning verses as an introduction into the whole of this wonderful epistle, this letter. And we want to ask these basic investigative questions. We want to ask from who? And then we want to look at to whom? And third, we want to look at what purpose that Peter writes. And we'll only get to the first two this morning. Lord willing, we will look at the purpose next week. But we begin this morning by looking from who? From who? writes this letter. Well, there is no question, is there? 
we're told right at the beginning. We're told with the very beginning words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Unlike modern letters or emails where we sign off on the ends, in the first century they would begin with their name. Most likely because it was written on a scroll. This letter would be delivered and written on a scroll. And so for someone to read and know who it was from, if the name was on the end, they would have to unroll the entire scroll and then roll it back up to begin reading. This way they knew right from the start who it was that was writing to them. And so we see here that the recipients of this letter know that it was Peter that was giving them this word. And Peter, we barely need an introduction to him, do we? We know who he is, who he was. In fact, out of all of the disciples, I think we know about Peter the best. Because there's far more stories about Peter, almost two to one, than any of the other disciples or apostles. But let's just list a few of the basic facts Again, about Peter. We know that he was from Galilee. We know that he was a fisherman. His brother was Andrew, along with James and John, who were also fishermen from that same area. They made up the inner circle of Jesus Christ. We know that Peter was married. We can presume presume that he had children. We know that he was a pillar of the early church, that he was an apostle, even describes himself as such here at the very beginning onsets. And as an apostle, that means that he went forth preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not have as extensive of travels as Paul, perhaps because he was married, but nevertheless, he visited various first century churches. We see in chapter 5 that two of his traveling partners were Silvanus and Mark. And Silvanus seemingly was the one that is the scribe of this particular letter dictated by Peter. And also Mark, we're very familiar with Mark, are we not having just concluded his gospel. And Mark made up his gospel out of the teaching and stories of Peter. So those are the basic facts, but even more so than the the basic facts about Peter. To know Peter and to read of him is to like him. I know of no more likable or relatable person in the entirety of the scriptures than Peter himself. Peter was a natural born leader it seems. Not in a domineering way, but in that sense that people seemed to gravitate to him, looked up to him. And I think this was for several reasons. There's several things to admire about Peter. First is his enthusiasm. He was an enthusiastic gentleman. He was always Johnny on the spot. Willing and ready to do whatever is needed to be done. And that's why I think there's so many stories about him. Because Peter just kind of naturally put himself forward. He was fiercely loyal. You see this wonderful connection, this friendship that he had with Jesus. He was willing to do whatever needed to be done. 
Whatever Jesus called him to do, Peter was willing and ready to be a part of. And he was seemingly outgoing and talkative. He never had to wonder what Peter was thinking. It usually just came out. He had that speak first, think second syndrome that some of us find ourselves doing. And I love the, the story of the Mount of Transfigurations where you, you see this. Peter just kind of speaking whatever comes to mind. You remember what happened there on the Mount of Transfiguration. There with Peter, James, and John, they see Jesus transfigured before them along with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, seeing this glorious, wondrous scene, says, Lord, it is it is good for us to be here. Let us make you a, a tent and, and another one for Moses and another one for Elijah so that we can just dwell here forever. But I love what Luke adds in his gospel. He says, not knowing what he said. In other words, Luke is essentially saying, yeah, he, he really didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> it just kind of came out. He was just so excited, this amazing and, and wondrous scene. He's, he's, it just boiled over. I have to say something. And then, ugh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. That's always the case with Peter. We saw this in the Gospel of Mark, where he goes from one moment being called blessed by our Lord when Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Peter gives this wonderful response saying that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the very next moment, he is rebuking Jesus because Jesus tells of his crucifixion. And Peter says, no, that can never happen. You can never die. And as a result, Jesus needs to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. Going from the right thing to say to the wrong thing to say and in the, the very same moment, that was Peter for better or for worse. And we see him as we did last week, also in need of forgiveness and reconciliation for his denial of Christ. And even as we read the epistles themselves, even in Galatians chapter 2, we see that Paul had to oppose Peter because of his sectarianism because of his favoritism being one way with the gentiles and then another when the circumcised jews showed up and so we see that peter was not without his faults not without his sin he too is in need of a savior he was in need of the very gospel in which he preached in other words, this Jesus, this gospel was not some ivory tower scholasticism. No, this was the truth that radically transformed Peter. In fact, so much so that his name needs to be changed by the Lord. It, so life-altering was Jesus Christ that he needed a new name. He needed a new beginning. It changed everything about him. And the Lord Jesus Christ does the same with us. From what we have come from, from who we are, 
to who we were, to the people that we now are by the grace of God. But if we think back, we wonder, do we not? If the Lord didn't intervene, where would we be today? If it was not for Christ, if it was not for the life-changing message of the gospel, if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we would be utterly and totally lost. It was the same way for Peter. And so when he begins with his name, it's so much more than just his name, is it not? His name means that he's been changed, that he's been transformed, that he has been set free. He is the rock, not because of himself, but because of Christ. And the same thing about us as well. Our name represents who we are. It represents our identity. It represents the whole of us. Our name tells a story, does it not? It tells of our testimony, for better or for worse. I had lunch recently with a a gentleman who had a little bit of a, a checkered past. and No doubt he was ashamed of that, but I told him, no, that is a part of who you were. Not who you are. That you can say, just like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, no, that's who I was when I was dead in my transgressions and sins. But the emphasis is on was. Past tense. Who I am now is a new creature in Jesus Christ because of the mercy and grace of Christ. Because Christ has made me Alive, And that is the glorious good news of the gospel, that when we think of who we are, we cannot think of ourselves apart from Christ. That that gives us our ultimate identity. You know, we, we find our identity in so many different things, do we not? We love for people to speak well of us, to, to use our name in, in, in a good light, to, to speak favorably. If we're honest with ourselves, we would love for everyone, everywhere, to know who we are. But you know what's better than that? And what your identity ultimately needs to be rooted in? It's not that you're known by everybody else, but that you're known by God. That you are called by Him. Called to be one of His own. Called to be a child of God. And when the day comes, you'll hear your name. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, come, you who are blessed by my Father. That is greater than anything else. That is so much greater than being known and famous by everyone. And what is more tragic is not being unknown or or being a nobody. No, it's the opposite of what I just said. It's not being known by God. Hearing on the day of judgment, depart from me, for I never knew you. But Christ knew Peter. Sins and all. It calls him his own. And he knows those that are his and calls us each by name. That we are known by God. That we are transformed by God. That is true of Peter and it's true of us as well. And as a result, Peter is used by the Lord. And used in a mighty way. He's called an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this title is unique to the 12 apostles, those 
eyewitnesses that were with Jesus, that were given unique access and, and thus given unique authority. They were chosen by him. They were servants of the word. Several of them are able to be authors of the inspired word of God through the Holy Spirit. And, they, and thus they speak authoritatively from God as a messenger of God, as the Old Testament prophets did. And as a result, they were used in a foundational way to establish the New Testament church. In fact, that is what Paul says about himself and the other apostles. He says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And notice their work is foundational. And because it's foundational, it's not perpetual. Therefore, with the death of these 12 apostles came the close of the office of apostle. And that needs to be said because there's many that will claim to be apostles this day, will use that term, will use that title to distinguish themselves. And in a way, it sounds better than than any other title. It gives some kind of greater or even superior supposed spiritual hierarchy. But let me say, there are no new apostles. There are only these apostles in the first century. In fact, John says in Revelation chapter 21, when he sees the new Jerusalem, he describes it this way. He says, and on the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Notice that, foundations. And on the foundations were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Notice there is only... 12 names. There's not 20 names or 200 names or 2,000 names of apostles. No, there are 12 names of the 12 apostles. Nowhere else do we see this title given to anyone else except these 12 in the first century. And so they were unique, but they were used as that foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built upon. And that's how we should see them, and that's how we should see this word that is given through them, that the the Holy Spirit used them to establish the church, the church in which we are built upon, using even this word that we see given to us this day. And so answering that question from who, we now turn to whom. To whom does Peter write this letter to? Again, it's very clear. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, these are cities and and believers in these cities in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This was not a place unfamiliar to Peter himself, he traveled there, he ministered to these people, he was in their homes, he knows them, he knows their names, he knows their faces. But I want to look specifically this morning at just those three descriptions of those that he writes to. You see it there in verse 1, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Let's begin with the end there. What does it mean that they were of the dispersion? Well, you may or may not know that after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, that Jerusalem and Judea and Israel became a very hostile place with much persecution under Emperor Claudius. 
leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and even the destruction of the temple itself in 70 AD. And as a result, there was many Jews. Some were Christians, some were not Christians that, that had to flee Israel. And therefore, they were settled in Greek communities. They were part of the dispersion, as Peter says, or the diaspora, the official title of this being cast out. That word literally means scattering. They scattered to find refuge, to find shelter. And therefore, they were foreigners in this land, and they had to learn the language and learn the culture, and thus they became Greek-speaking Jews. And as a result, they were not accepted. They weren't accepted back home in Israel because they were seen as those that had compromised, that had fled, that didn't persevere, that didn't endure like the rest, almost seen more as Gentile than Jewish living outside of the Holy Land. And also they were not accepted in the culture where they now found themselves because, again, they were different. And so that is why Peter calls them here exiles. But to put it in modern terms, refugees. Essentially, without a home. Having a home, but having no homeland. And so this term is better translated I think stranger, or perhaps your translation says pilgrim, who were non-citizens. And there's some, even in this, our midst today, that understand this all too well, who came from a different country than this one, to find protection, to find refuge, to find opportunities not afforded them, in their own lands. But most of us have no clue what that's like. We don't understand that sense of fear, that sense of instability that comes when you are a refuge, a stranger in a strange land. As many of you know, I grew up in Fresno, California, and Fresno has a large community of Hmong people who fled Vietnam and and Laos in the 70s and 80s due to genocide in their country of their very own people because they were seen as traitors by their own country. And they were considered traitors because they had aided the Americans in the Vietnam War. And so they fled here, they found refuge here in the United States, but you would think that they would have been embraced and welcomed here in America. No, they were not. They're merely seen as, from most Americans as those that America fought against. No distinguishing factors. So there's this deep sense of not belonging. I remember one, one of them saying, we are here, but we're not here. We belong, but we, we don't belong. They were strangers, like Peter calls these that he writes to. And if you understand that reality or not physically, you need to understand it spiritually. Because I think what Paul is communicating here is not just to those that fled their homeland and found themselves in this strange country. No, he's, he's speaking even broader and greater than that. He's speaking to all Christians. He's speaking to even us 
who have been in this land, that know the the peace and protection that this country has afforded us. But nevertheless, we still must see ourselves as strangers, called to be on a pilgrimage, called to be pilgrims, that we should never be ultimately settled here, never ultimately saying, this is my land, this is my people. No, we are not to be earthly-minded. We're not to be of that worldly mindset. There must be a distinction, a marked difference between us and everyone else around us. Let me ask you that question this morning. Do you you sense that? Do you sense more and more that this place is not your home? I hope you do. Because I think that is a, a longing, that is a desire that needs to grow in us. And more you grow in the Lord, the more that longing grows. That this home is not your own. And perhaps you even sense that from others that don't understand where you come from or, or the perspective that you have. And as a result, you're being excluded, you're being left out of things. Now hopefully you're not being left out of things because... You're just strange and odd in the personality sense. But you're seen as strange and odd because of your identification with Christ. And your stand with Him. You see yourself as strange and a stranger, a pilgrim that's passing through. I think throughout the scriptures we see that that is something that must identify us. That we are called to be children of Abraham. That we're called to have the same spiritual journey as Abraham had. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, that they, the, the, the patriarchs, were strangers and exiles on the earth because they were seeking a homeland, as it were a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. You hear what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the the patriarchs didn't have a home. That they were continual pilgrims. Literally and spiritually. I think that was intentional by the Lord because they would be models for all believers that would come after them. But notice what the author of Hebrews says, that they were looking forward to a greater land, a greater city. And therefore they walked by faith and not by sight. They saw a promise of that which is yet to come. A land greater than the promised land of Israel. They were looking for the future promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. They were looking for what John saw in Revelation 21. When he says of the new Jerusalem holy city coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband and hearing a voice from heaven saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man and he dwells with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God you hear what John is saying there and what he's revealing there in Revelation that that which was lost in Eden with God dwelling with man, is restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that's what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob looked for. 
That's what they had their eyes set upon. That's what gave them this future hopefulness of a greater city yet to come. And Peter does the same here by calling them exiles, calling them strangers. And he does so because those that he's writing to are experiencing tribulations and are experiencing persecution. And this book has much to say about suffering. And Peter is giving them a hope, saying, you shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, he'll say those exact words in 1 Peter 4 when he says, do not be surprised by fiery trials. Because you're on a journey. You're looking for something greater than this land. This land is only full of afflictions and suffering and difficulties. But there is a greater land yet to come. Set your hope, set your mind, set your eyes upon that. The new heavens and the new earth. And that can get you through, can it not? It's similar to many of you are looking forward and and making plans for, for summer vacation. And life is hectic and and work is difficult. And you're just waiting for that time to to go away, that time to relax and be at peace and get rest and be with your family. And you have that, that longing for it and you look forward to it. And having that on the horizon allows you to persevere through all of that busyness and that stress now. And that is similar to what Peter is doing here by calling them exiles. And we must look to it as well. How much greater is heaven amidst the trials of life than even the best vacation? Because heaven is the eternal vacation. The eternal place of peace and rest. Where John says that every tear is wiped away. Where there is no death, no mourning, no crying, nor pain. Where former things are passed away, done away, and the new things become, including ourselves. And therefore, we must have that longing in the midst of life. We'll finish with this. We see one other description here where he calls them elect exiles. And we'll look more at this next week. But Peter is saying to them, you may be scattered, you may be strangers, you may seem lost in a lost world, but you are not lost by God. You might be outsiders by everybody else, but you're not an outsider to God. You're not a stranger to God. You're chosen. You are elect. The almighty God of heaven and earth knows your name, knows who you are. In fact, knows you intimately, knows every detail of your life, and he cares for you. He's given his son for you. So you may be strangers and pilgrims in this world, but you are eternally secure in Christ. Amidst the storms and amidst the trials of life, that's the anchor. That's the anchor for your soul. And that anchor is no greater anchor than the Lord Jesus Christ himself that identifies with us. That gives us that stability. That gives us that foundation for life. Gives us that great hope. And so we'll look more into that next week as we look for the purpose why Peter wrote. But let me go back to that question as we conclude. To whom does Peter write? Yes, he is writing to those that he indicates here. 
But he writes to all believers. He writes to all of the elect. The elect of the first century Asia Minor. And also the elect of the 21st century American. And therefore this book, written by Peter, but more so written by the Holy Spirit, is written for us today. We need this word. As I said at the very beginning, we need to be transformed by it. And so I hope you'll pray with me. I hope you'll pray for me. I hope you'll pray for yourself. And therefore, I hope you'll pick up and and read and that you'll prayerfully read and meditate on this book week by week. That you'll prepare your hearts and your minds to receive all that God would give to us through it so that collectively, by the Spirit of God and And by his power that we may be sanctified by truth. As Jesus says, your word is truth. First Peter, this word is truth. Given to us this day. May we receive it through the blessing of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would... Allow us to apply this word to us, every aspect of it. Lord, if it grants comfort, if it grants conviction, that your spirit would have his way with us, Lord. For you are the potter, and we are the clay. And so mold us and shape us, and make us anew. We pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.